Kevin Trenberth is a distinguished scholar at the National Center of Atmospheric Research in Boulder and an honorary academic in the Department of Physics, Auckland University in Auckland, New Zealand. He obtained his SCD in Meteorology in 1972 from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was a lead author of the 1995, 2001, and 2007 Scientific Assessment of Climate Change Reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and shared the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize, which went to the IPCC. He served from 1999 to 2006 on the Joint Scientific Committee of the World Climate Research Program, and chaired a number of committees for more than 20 years. He is the author of The Changing Flow of Energy Through the Climate System. Kevin Trenberth, welcome to the One Planet Podcast. Thank you for having me. So as a distinguished scholar and world expert on climate change, you've written a comprehensive book, The Changing Flow of Energy Through the Climate System, which really explains the fundamentals of climate change. Can you just walk us through what you mean by Earth's energy imbalance? And this statistic, which seemed amazing to me, that the amount of heat soaked up by the oceans is 80 to 90 times greater than the world's entire electricity generation. Yes, the work that I've been focusing on in the last few years deals very much with the flow of energy through the climate system. And so this relates more directly to the main sources of human-induced climate change. Now, the reason for that is because the direct effects of humans are relatively small from space heating and electricity use. And the main way in which humans change the climate is by interfering with the natural flows of energy through the climate system. And so we have the sun beating down with a certain amount of radiation coming in. Some of it's reflected. The net amount received is called the absorbed solar radiation. And then we have our planet, which is in order to reach an equilibrium is radiating back to space in infrared wavelengths. So this is the outgoing long wave radiation. Now, because of the increasing blanket of greenhouse gases, the outgoing long wave radiation has been somewhat diminished. The way in which it gets cranked back up again is by increasing the temperature of the earth. And so then it can radiate at a greater rate. And so the difference between the incoming radiation and the outgoing radiation is the energy imbalance. And so what happens to that energy as it flows through the climate system and its consequences are all what we're seeing with regard to climate change. The changes in the global mean surface temperature, which are so often used as an indicator for climate change, they're used for instance, in the Paris Agreement, we talk about one and a half or two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, but those are really a, a relatively small consequence. They, they are not the cause of the climate change, although they do certainly feed back and influence the nature of the climate change. It's really this extra energy that we have available and what happens to it that matters. It really helps to clarify a lot. Another thing that you address is the, the real cost of climate change on top of the 
fires and flooding and storms and loss of habitats, climate refugees and heat waves and pollution and the emotional and physical anguish, and of course, the loss of lives caused by climate change. There is a financial cost, and you've stated that the real cost of climate change is grossly underestimated by economists. So instead of, say, 1 billion US dollars, it's more in the region of 100 billion or, or more? Well, that was a particular case in point. That was just illustrative. But yes, the problem is that the climate changes, although relatively modest, and we can talk about that a little more because the way in which we estimate it is through everything involved in water. And maybe we should actually backtrack a little bit because the whole role of water and the hydrological cycle is a key part of the main damage that occurs. And so the incoming energy, a lot of that goes into evaporating moisture. The air gets warmer, it's thirstier, it can hold more moisture. That moisture then gets caught up in storms and so it rains harder, causing uh, flooding. But in places where it's not raining, things dry out even more than they otherwise would. And as a result, droughts become uh, more intense and, and longer lasting. And so we have this ironical pattern of both extremes of the hydrological cycle, the very dry extremes of drought and the floods, both increasing. And so what is happening is that we're crossing thresholds and the infrastructure that we have typically built, the whole social fabric that we have is based upon the past climate. And so once we cross that threshold, it's what I call the straw that breaks the camel's back syndrome. And so you have a relatively modest change, which I estimate to be in the neighborhood of five to 20% typically. And that is enough to nudge us often so that, in, as I say, as you said, instead of $1 billion in damage from say a hurricane, we end up with a hundred billion dollars. Now that's just one example. There there are many other cases, but the sort of things that happen are indeed that something floods, the amount of water can no longer be tolerated, something completely dries out and there's a drought and subsequent wildfires when buildings burn down and so on, suddenly you've gone from something to nothing. It's just, that's an extreme nonlinearity. And another extreme nonlinearity is, of course, when people die. You don't recover from that, unfortunately, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, those are the kinds of nonlinearities when you cross thresholds and things break. So they break or they burn or they flood or people die. And this is the thing which amplifies all of the costs, not just in dollars or whatever the currency is, but also in terms of the disruption and the cost of lives and damage. And saying dollars is often not the best metric because a major hurricane in, when was it, December 2020, Yasa went through the Fijian Islands. It went right through. And at one point, the core was right between the main islands. And it was absolutely devastating. But the cost of the infrastructure there doesn't put it in the billion dollar category, and yet it completely devastated all of the housing, as well as all of the crops and the fields and completely disrupted the life of everybody there. 
it was just so damaging. And how do you properly capture all of those aspects? And it's not something, again, that economists do especially well. Yes, I don't like to put it in dollar terms. It's life itself. But 100 billion seems to be the something that makes people pay attention. Have we already, we're estimates, we are involved in this research, shown that we're, we may already be en route for 1.5 degrees. We're heating at such a rate that we're heating faster than we originally estimated. The best estimate at the moment is that we're somewhere around 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. But the IPCC and its governmental panel on climate change in their recent series of reports, the uh, physical science report in November, if we very rapidly reduce emissions and change the way we're doing things, then the 1.5 degrees C threshold will be in jeopardy. And the problem is, if you look at what's happening around the world, nothing Rapid is happening. In fact, things have gone backwards because of the conflict in, in the Ukraine and the inability to work with Russia and maybe even China in some ways. There's no unified global approach to dealing with uh, climate change at the moment. And so the best estimate, I think certainly we're going to go through 1.5 degrees Celsius. I think the best estimate is probably somewhere around 2032 or thereabouts, the early 2030s. And at the current rate we're going, we'll go through two degrees Celsius in the, in the mid to late to 2050s. Now, there's certainly time to slow that rate of increase down, and we could easily push the two degree C threshold out to 2070 or 2080. And with really strong efforts, we might be able to hold the overall global mean surface temperature increase to something maybe close to that, although whether it goes past it and then comes back a little bit to it remains to be seen. So this relates to current policies and what nations are committed to doing. Certainly, if everyone's current policies and what they're committed to doing were in place, we would be in a much better situation than we actually are because a lot of those policies have been mentioned, but there's no implementation plans in many countries. There was a recent report I saw which said maybe two countries around the whole in the world out of, what, 190 something countries that are maybe on track to meeting their obligations on the COP26 meeting in, in Glasgow last year, and that relates to the Paris Agreement. And so most countries are not on track at all. Countries like the United States went severely backwards during the Trump administration. Certainly the Biden administration is trying very hard, but the Congress is not allowing them to do very much. They've put a lot of things in place. They just can't seem to implement them at the current time. And so it's not looking very rosy right now, especially the way in which the world is shaping up, because this is a global problem that we all have to deal with. And so what for you would be a real integrative intersectional climate change solution uh, on a global level? What does that global cooperation look like? It's very difficult because everyone produces emissions. You and I do in our 
daily life. And sometimes it's not very much, but there's a lot of industry that produces emissions of carbon dioxide and or methane. And any time we drive a car or travel, or especially if we fly somewhere, there are emissions which are going into the atmosphere. And there are many other parts of industry that are dealing with manufacturing and also the whole agriculture, all of the production of food and, and especially meat can be quite intensive, especially in terms of the methane, for instance. And the use of fossil fuels, I think, is the biggest, in this regard, evil. And a lot of it is not done very well. This relates to things like fracking and leaky mines. And there is a, a lot of documentation suggesting that leaky mines, old mines that have been abandoned, that are gases are filtering out of pipelines are not as tight as they need to be. And there's just a lot of waste that could be cleaned up. And so methane is one of the targets from the COP26 meeting that where real progress could take place, but it's primarily related to these fugitive emissions of, of methane. And ultimately, I think there needs to be a price on carbon. So this means that it's not just the cost of digging coal out of the ground or oil, getting oil out of the ground and mining, but also properly accounting for all of the downstream effects of that, including all of the air pollution, the air quality issues, which relates to things like asthma and other problems that occur, but especially the carbon dioxide emissions that are altering the composition of the atmosphere and once carbon dioxide's in the atmosphere, it has a very long lifetime for centuries. And so uh, as soon as that's emitted, it has costs attached to it. And so this relates to whether or not you can put a price on carbon and some nations and some uh, groups like the European Union have indeed attempted to do that. The general tendency is to try to increase that over time, but it is really quite difficult because different Nations are more rigorous in addressing this. And a lot of it comes down to how do you deal with trade? And so a country like Australia, for instance, exports a very large amount of coal to China. So who does that coal, who gets blamed for the emissions from that coal? Is it Australia or is it? China, how does some kind of a tax or tariff apply to that? Maybe a different example is beef. Australia also exports a large amount of beef to other countries and including to China. And so since it's exported and it's consumed in another country, does the carbon that went into producing that beef, does it get blamed on Australia? or does it get blamed on the country which is consuming that product? And exactly how you do that is quite tricky, but it also means that you're dealing with trade and tariffs and how you properly price things in the international commodity market. And 
As you well aware, there's a lot of troubles because of shortages of natural gas in Europe because of the restrictions of using Russian fossil fuel products. And even that is produced in, in Russia and the Ukraine is not in the international marketplace. And so suddenly wheat is going up in price. And so people are not even very concerned about the carbon footprint of these activities. They're much more concerned about whether they have adequate food or fuel for heating or driving or air conditioning and, and so on. And most people, I think, are probably in that category. They're not the, the climate change consequences, which are really going to hit the next generation and especially the generation after that, some 50 years from now, those consequences are not with us. So properly pricing carbon and reaching international agreements relating to this is going to be a very challenging thing to do, but I don't see how it can be done equitably otherwise. It still mean, may mean that things are very different inside of a country versus the interactions of that country with other countries. And I've seen examples, I'm in New Zealand and New Zealand and Australia are competitors on the international marketplace and, and New Zealand has had a more rigorous emissions control schemes and costs attached to emissions than Australia has, but it puts New Zealand farmers at a disadvantage relative to Australian farmers in the international marketplace. I've seen it when I was living in the United States, for instance. You could have a state like California that is trying to be more environmentally responsible. And so they have some kind of tax or a fee attached to environmental issues, which may include emissions. And so uh, a company then says, all right, I'm going to move out of California and go to the next state over. And then the emissions won't count. And so suddenly California loses a, a lot of employment. And so that's where industry can hold governments over a barrel and say, if you put these extra costs on us, which are really these downstream costs, then we'll move from one state to another. We'll move from one country to another. And, and this is partly one of the sorts of things which is happening and, and it makes this a really complicated, wicked problem, actually. Even on the level of accurate reporting as well, and I, I know there's the, the climate analytics tracker. I don't know how granular that gets on true calculation of carbon. So as I say, there are two main things that are being considered. One of them is carbon dioxide, which has a longer lifetime. Another one is methane. So with regard to methane, there are some satellites up there now that can track and spot big patches of methane emissions. Sometimes these are relatively short-lived. There's a, a sudden whole bunch of methane comes out of a mine that got opened up and it drifts up in the air and the satellites can spot it. But then, you know, three days later, it's diffused and it and you can no longer track it back to its source. Sometimes there are persistent sources, but some of those are at a little bit lower level. There are new satellites going up, which will be able to determine that. And so 
that we'll be able to track where the emissions are coming from and who is responsible for it and, and figures can be pointed. And so that is something that should be uh, addressable. And indeed for methane, if you cut down on leaks, then you have more methane for whatever purpose you're using it for heating or, or other purposes. And in general, methane is natural gas. So it's used a lot for cooking and other things. And so that can actually often be dealt with without any major costs attached to it. Now, it's a little bit of a different story with regard to carbon dioxide. And there are certainly carbon dioxide tracking going on, but you've probably heard a lot about estimates of emissions. And there are two ways this is stuck. And one is bottom up, where you go around and look and see who's burning stuff and where it's all coming from. And you try and put a ballpark estimate on it and say, all right, California's putting out this amount of emissions. The U.S. is putting out this amount. Europe's putting out this amount. India's putting out this amount. China's putting it, and so on. And then you add it all up and see what it comes to. And at the same time, we have these stations around the world. One of the best known is in Mauna Loa that are continually measuring carbon dioxide concentrations. And so the Im increase in emissions is what ends up as concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the and so that's called a top-down estimate. You're looking at the actual concentrations in the atmosphere and you've got estimates of the emissions. And the trouble is when you put those two things together, they don't add up very well. There's a gap. And a good example is what happened during the pandemic. So there's a pandemic for the last, what, two to three years, two and a half years, something like that. And so there was a big slowdown in, in driving, especially in transport. Many airlines no longer flew routes. There was a big drop in estimated emissions. But if you look at the concentrations, they kept going up. There was no sign of a slowdown in the concentration rate of increase of concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So why was that? I think mainly it's because of wildfires, forest fires. Who estimates how much wood is burned in a wildfire in California or in Siberia or in Southern Europe or, or somewhere where there's a wildfire and how much carbon dioxide that generates and who do you attribute that to? Uh, who, who do you blame on that? And I, I think that's the biggest source that is probably not properly accounted for. That's the bottom line is the concentrations. They just keep going relentlessly up. And in fact, they keep going up at a steeper rate in spite of the Paris Agreement and in spite of the earlier Kyoto Protocol and all of the things that have been done, especially in Europe, to try to rein in emissions of, of carbon dioxide and so on. And so there is a bit, a bit more of a problem in tracking just where all of the carbon dioxide is coming from. But I think the scientists and the monitoring from space is getting better so that 
that capability is getting uh, closer. And at least in some sense, you'll be able to see, oh, yes, there's this big cloud of carbon dioxide coming out of, let's say, China. I have to be a little bit diplomatic here if I can. And here it is drifting across the Pacific. And now it's going through the U.S. And, and two weeks later, it's going through Europe. And, and we can actually trap this for a while. And then some of it goes into the Southern Hemisphere. And, and because it has a long lifetime, but it does get mixed up by all of the weather systems. And so you can't really track it for that long. And so you have to bring in numerical weather prediction models and the capabilities of dealing with this are increasing. The European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts that is uh, centered in uh, Reading in the UK is one of the leading institutions that is actually making really good progress on that. The question I would like to ask, if all ground and air transportation had zero emissions, how much impact would that have on the rate of global warming if we went to electric or clean energy or other renewable sources of energy? If you're just dealing with air and shipping, I think that's somewhere around 3% of the total something like that, but that doesn't include all of the vehicles. And I don't have that number off the top of my head. It's something that can certainly be determined or estimated, I think, that one of the things which many countries have done is to put down a marker and say, we will get to net zero by 2050, or in the case of China, by 2060. So how do you get to net zero and what is net zero? Net zero means Overall emissions are uh, zero, but it says you can have some emissions of carbon dioxide as long as you've got offsets of some kind. And the main offsets that are talked about relate especially to growing trees, which take up carbon dioxide through photosynthesis and put it into the form of wood. But not fully addressed is what do you do with the trees? What do you do with that wood? And it may well be that if you could even get to net zero at 2050, that sometime later, all of your wood is sitting there in a big forest and then there's a wildfire and suddenly it goes back into the atmosphere and it hasn't really gone at all. And so there are some major issues of that nature that exist as well. You mentioned it was a 3% emissions for transport. Can you just outline some of the other percentages so we have a, a global picture on that? And of course, there are two possible ways of doing that. One is the emissions at, at the current time, and the other is the cu accumulated emissions, especially with regard to carbon dioxide. And I've got various ones here. We were surprised that it was only 3%. And I know there's variation in how you're calculating that, but we're just wondering where's the other 97? This is 2018, the ones I've got ahead of me here. Ships and airs is listed as 3.7%. But if you accumulate it from 1751 to 2018, it's 2.3%. Uh, the number I gave wasn't too bad. Now, China is responsible for most. It's about 29% in, in that year. But for cumulative emissions, it's about 13.5%. And for cumulative emissions, the U.S. is the biggest contributor. Otherwise, the, the breakdown I've got here is all in terms of countries. The ships and air is, is called out separately because it's not clear 
always which country you should attribute that to. Should it be the country that the ship is going to or coming from or that it's registered to or so on? So there are some tricky issues relating to that kind of thing. The U.S. is now back in the Paris Climate Accord to reduce gas emissions. Do you think the goals are achievable since there are no incentives or penalties? Will that reverse the Earth's energy imbalance or will more aggressive measures be needed to help? Yes, so that's a key thing. The the Paris Agreement was remarkable in that, and this is one of the things about the United Nations, the United Nations works through unanimous agreement. And you have to try to get everybody on board. And often that means watering down language in some shape or form in order to get everyone on board. And there was a lot of negotiations that went on in order to get the Paris Agreement. It was a remarkable agreement in that regard. But as you've noticed, there are no penalties. There are no specified targets. And this is somewhat different than what happened in the Kyoto Protocol quite some time ago, but that was just relating to Annex One countries, the industrialized countries. And that turned out to be a major issue because it didn't have any restrictions or goals at all for places like China and India, which have had uh, tremendous uh, amounts of growth in, in those emissions. And the only real way you can deal with this at the moment is through peer pressure of the countries that are most involved and it includes countries like Brazil and it includes Russia and China and so on. It doesn't seem very practical though. Another option might be through the G7 and that looked a little more likely not too long ago that G7 got rid of Russia. That was the G8. And it includes uh, Europe and, and China and the U.S. The biggest emitter is China. And the U.S. is like now a fairly distant second, but still second. But the U.S. is the leader in terms of the total accumulated amounts. And so I think that if China and the U.S. could get together and really take this on for the whole of the global climate system, then other countries would be forced through, if you like, peer pressure to come on board. And those that didn't can be penalized through various kinds of trade and and tariff agreements. And ultimately, I think that it may be that something like that has to happen relationships between the U.S. and China have deteriorated in the last two or three years as China seems to have become uh, a bit more aggressive. And there's no sign of that kind of thing happening. The other major player that should be involved is the EU, Europe. And uh, EU has always been the most responsible of all of the nations in many respects since the Kyoto Protocol. And so if the EU and China and the U.S. were to set the stage, if you like to think of it that way, maybe other countries then would have to come on board and they would be shamed into it if they didn't. And anyone that's involved in international trade could be indeed penalized. And so ultimately, I think it has to come about in some way like that, but it means we've got to have international relationships that work. 
unfortunately, the United Nations is quite a weak body and there's, there's no international government. There is nobody in charge internationally which can wave a magic wand or can act as a conductor and point to everyone and say, all right, it's your turn to do something and so on and make it all happen. And many countries will not give the UN any more authority, if you like to think of it that way. But this is the thing which many skeptics do not seem to adequately appreciate, that this is truly a global problem. And yet we have no global infrastructure. There's no global government to take care of this. And the things like the Paris Agreement are the best approximations we have to that, but there's no teeth to it. So that's the way I see it, at least. Yes. And also when you get agreements, whether the reporting is accurate enough, what would you like to see in terms of that? That relates partly to technology and modeling, and there has been a growth of international centers. And I think that over the next few years, we could indeed see a situation where there is routine monitoring of carbon dioxide and methane from space in conjunction with modeling. So this relates to sophisticated numerical weather prediction, not modeling all of the sort of things that is done in dealing with weather, except in addition to temperature and humidity and rainfall and so on, you also have carbon dioxide and methane and maybe even some of the other things which are useful like carbon monoxide that you can monitor from space. And you can put together a complete picture as to what is going on. You can even make a forecast for the next week or month as to where all of this stuff will be and by implication, where some of it is coming from. And so ultimately, I think we could grow a system that provides an information system, if you like, of what is going on at the very least. And I think that's a very important thing. So with regard to climate change, firstly, we often talk about adaptation as one leg of a stool, and that relates to assessing impacts and vulnerability and building resilience and planning for and adapting to climate change. That's all of the stuff which is done under working group two of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The second leg of the stool is called mitigation. Now mitigation has a special meaning here that relates to emissions and it relates to cutting emissions and getting emissions under control. That's working group three of the IPCC. And so we have adaptation and mitigation, but the big question is what are we adapting to and what are we mitigating? And so this relates to the essential third leg of the stool, which is information. And so we need an information system. And maybe that's the first thing that really gets built up is a solid information system of the sort that I was mentioning, where all of the best available information on not only what's happening in terms of the composition of the atmosphere and everything that's going on and all of the weather and the climate system. So we know where the rainfall is occurring, where the floods are and so on, but also a lot of the social science aspects, all of the impacts and the consequences in various places around the world, the effects on food. Now, many countries don't want you to know how well their crops are doing because 
that has implications for trade. And more and more of this stuff can actually be done from space. And certain amounts of it will be done from space, and in, even if it's not publicly released. There's some diplomatic issues relating to that have to be addressed. But having an information system and providing information of who's doing what and what is happening, and then the obvious thing from that is to make a forecast or, or a prediction, or at the very least a projection, as to what that implies for what's going to happen next year, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And then you have uh, more exact predictions of what's going on. And I think this is the way in which the whole of the IPCC should evolve. I think they should do away with the IPCC as it stands and develop a, a different system, one which is focused on this kind of information system about what is happening, why it is happening and what it means for the future, and then what can we do about it? In, in many ways, this requires much more of a global approach to things. And so Europe is a good example. You go back before the EU was formed as to how countries were able to work together and form various kinds of organizations, such as the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecast. That's a European body that is producing extended range weather forecasts and assimilating a lot of this information and then providing this information to European countries. And a lot of it comes out to the rest of the world as well. And there are some other major centers, such as in the United States, there's probably a couple of them there in NASA and in NOAA and so on that can play a, a major role in this kind of thing. And maybe even some smaller centers, such as in Melbourne and Australia and so on, can play a role. And then this information center, this climate information system can feed what is actually happening and needs to happen in terms of adaptation and mitigation and where you get the best bang for your buck, so to speak. That's the way I would see it. I'm Lila Moskowski a student at Barnard College in New York City and a collaborator with the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. Hearing Kevin Trenberth discuss the need for global cooperation in order to even attempt to mitigate climate change is eye-opening because it highlights the idea that we are in a planetary crisis. It is not isolated to one place, but is a problem of the Earth as a whole. I have a keen interest in the environment and in biodiversity and am passionate about finding solutions to climate change in order to save the planet from its current state of peril. This past semester, I took a molecular biology course that looked at the potential of reducing a cow's methane emissions through different feed sources. And I was intrigued by this approach of mitigating greenhouse gas emissions as it focuses deeply on one main cause, as opposed to looking at the bigger picture. While I believe that studies like this are helpful in understanding how to slow climate change, there's a looming and growing need for a more efficient stop. The three elements that are required for change that Trenberth identifies is particularly fascinating to me because it creates a tangible solution and it emphasizes the reasons why we have failed to succeed in the past. It is not possible to solve a global problem with many individual approaches that are not completely aligned. The desperate need for communication between countries in order to make meaningful change that Trenberth emphasizes is especially hopeful to me because, 
While it is a solution that seems daunting because it involves cooperation from everyone, it is equivalent to the massive scale of the issue. As Trendberth also states, there are already organizations that are working to gather this needed information, so there is a start to this process that is now mainly lacking communication and a global network. While we are attempting to adapt and mitigate on many different local scales, there is still a need for an overarching system that connects and drives holistic change. Until now, I have been involved in study and research of the environment on a more granular level, but Trendberth has inspired me to want to be a part of a broader movement. And now, back to the interview. We're living in the center of the city. We're living, as you say, a decade of transformation. Cities are the main drivers of creativity and innovation and consumed in the region of 75% of the world's natural resources, 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. So what do you feel the cities of the future are going to look like in terms of energy, transport, resource, and waste management? You know, all those things you mentioned, food, pollution. Yes, it's not something that I'm an expert in, and it's all very well to say, this is what it should look like. The biggest issue is actually how you get there from here and how things evolve. And I can just see it now in Auckland, in New Zealand, where I am. And it's true in all Western countries. It is that they've grown up with roads and cars and vehicles and people moving around and so on. And yet that probably really has a cost attached to it that people are not adequately paying. And so how can you get to the point where people are actually not moving around as much and reducing their carbon footprints in various ways? The main way we're planning on doing that is uh, decarbonizing the economy. And so this means electrifying a lot of things. And so we're going to electric cars. People still are moving around. They're now using electric cars, but they're still using cars. And how can you build new cities that don't require that in quite the same way? And maybe we got some visions as to the sorts of things that might happen or should happen uh, during the pandemic when people suddenly couldn't travel or they were in lockdown and they had to work from home. And of course, increasingly, people uh, have been able to work from home. This was something I advocated a long time ago when I was working at MCAR, is that we needed to develop better ways of going to a seminar without driving eight miles across town to a, a building where that was actually happening. And nowadays, through the process that we're using right at the moment through Zoom, uh, a lot of these uh, conferences, Italian conferences, can actually take place. Some of it still needs to evolve. I've, I've been to various conferences and I find it rather unsatisfactory that you can't quite interact and you can't ask questions in the same way you could if you were actually there. But there's been a lot of development in this whole area and a lot of companies now, there are many companies that have 30%, 50%, 70% of their people are working from home, or at least they're working from home three or four days a week. 
And uh, as this increases and cuts down on commuting and the need for travel, that's a huge step forward, but it's going to have to evolve and it'll be interesting to see how it happens. It's twofold, but you can get a lot of more uh, creativity as well when you're able to access everyone instead of those who are just able to attend. So regarding the use of nuclear, what are your feelings? There has been developments on small modular uh, reactors, especially in places like South Korea. In the United States, nuclear has become uh, moribund because of the regulations and the costs. The costs are too high. There has been a lot of uh, nuclear power in France. Japan has shut down their nuclear power. They obviously had major problems. And certainly nuclear invokes nuclear bombs. And many of the public are uh, terrified and not in my backyard. You can't build those kind of structures there. But small modular reactors are uh, growing in, I think, also maybe in uh, the Soviet Union and South Korea and in some places. I think they may have a place, but the real question is the cost. And there are still costs attached to the waste fuel and so on. Increasingly, there's a capability of using the waste, recycling it and using it up. So there's certainly a lot less waste than there was even 10 or 20 years ago. And so the waste problem is a, a lot different than it used to be. But there are still major security issues. There are issues about how you run these things so that they don't blow up, but there have been a couple of examples in the past where that happened. And I think that problem, my, my sense is that problem is under control. And I think the biggest problem is probably one of perception that too many people are terrified of nuclear in order to let it happen. But I think it could indeed be a part of the solution, but you still do have nuclear waste. Some of that nuclear waste has really long life and carbon dioxide has a long lifetime of a couple of hundred years or more, but nuclear waste has a uh, 20,000 years or more. And so one has to certainly be able to address that and what you do with it. Yeah, certainly a combination of routes. And also, how do you feel we can support governments of developing countries to translate their climate targets and pledges at the same time to mitigate as well as so that they can adapt to developing their countries? Yeah, this relates a lot to the Green Fund that was established under the Paris Agreement. And many small island states or developing countries have contributed very little to this problem overall. The trouble is some of them demand that they be able to burn coal and exploit it in order to elevate their own economy and take advantage of this in, in some way. There are different ways of doing that now by using solar panels and wind and so on. And a lot of those kind of developments are happening in in places like Africa. But this does relate to whether uh, a reasonable green fund can be sustained and the building of resilience and adaptation and making sure that developing countries are using the best technology, not using fossil fuels to generate energy. We, you know, they need energy, everyone needs energy, but can you get it from renewable sources, from solar power and hydropower and wind power and other sources? And 
I think that those capabilities will develop over time. But in the meantime, there's probably too many people in the world and the ability of many of the practices that we have. And it's not just relating to the climate and the climate system. It's the whole food and water systems and availability and how we become more sustainable as a whole is perhaps a bigger issue. The rising sea levels, what would you suggest I or others in my generation do in terms of actions or advocacy to have the greatest impact on reversing global warming? Yeah, so global sea level is going up about four to five millimeters per year at the moment. It was going up about three millimeters per year up to about 2012 or thereabouts. It seems to have increased somewhat. I, I think the best guess is that sea level will be maybe 300 millimeters higher by 2100 or something like that, 330 centimeters a foot. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Rather than a meter, which some people have suggested. But the trouble with sea level is that even after you get to net zero, assuming every country does get to net zero, your sea level keeps going up. It keeps going up because the oceans are not in equilibrium. They're very slow to respond. The heat uh, penetrates slowly into the ocean. The, the heat takes the heat that's in the upper layers of the ocean now takes about 30 years to get down below, say, two kilometers in depth. And, and that process slowly continues for decades and even centuries. So sea level keeps rising for a couple of hundred years or more. And everyone has that to look forward to. And that includes developed countries. And it means anyone in coastal regions is in jeopardy. And the way sea level damages things is not because you're standing on the coast and the sea level goes up to your toes and then it goes up to your ankles and you think, oh, I better move or something like that. No, it happens episodically because there's a big storm with onshore winds and suddenly the water is piling up and the erosion is tremendous and it occurs in association with waves more than anything. And then the next thing you've got a whole cliff caving in and this tremendous erosion occurring, uh, even in places that thought they were fine because they were up on the top of a cliff somewhere. So erosion, coastal erosion is going to continue to be a major problem. You can hold it off for a while with dikes or with the barriers that keep the tide out at high tide because the worst damage occurs with a storm surge on top of a high tide and so on. But the fact that sea level is continuing to go up is going to be one of the major issues that everyone is going to have to deal with. So the message for you, watch where you buy a place and don't buy something too close to the coast. Because maybe if you buy inland a little bit, eventually you might be on the coast. It's already affecting estate prices in certain areas, but not yet in New York, which doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> You talked about the carbon offset issue and planting initiatives. Are there other more intelligent carbon offset initiatives? We know that wetlands absorb carbon. Are there other ways that won't maybe eventually resort in wildfires? One of the things which is most worrying, I think, is the uh, thawing of permafrost. And so this is happening in uh, North America, in Siberia, um, maybe parts of Northern Europe and so on, there are extensive regions of permafrost 
as that thaws, there's a tremendous amount of carbon in the spoils. And that, as that becomes exposed to the atmosphere, it releases, if it's in a wet environment, it releases methane. If it's in a, if it becomes dried out, it, it ends up putting carbon dioxide directly in the atmosphere. Uh, if it's methane, it eventually gets oxidized and it ends up as carbon dioxide. So this is a very powerful feedback that ca- could put a lot more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and contribute to the overall problem that we have. So that's certainly one major concern. And the problem with certainly growing trees or various kinds of biological processes can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And the question is what you do with it. And certainly with trees, one way of, of treating trees is that there are renewable resources. And so you grow trees. When they grow up, you burn them instead of coal as fuel. And a lot of that is happening with wood chips in various places around the world. And they're even talking about using that in industry and blast furnaces and so on. And in some sense, that's a renewable resource. The trees take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but then you put it back in. But maybe the net is not that much, not that bad. And I often think that in dealing with trees, that may be one of the better ways to look at it, because otherwise the question is, reforestation is highly desirable. Afforestation is highly desirable. The losses of tropical rainforests in the Amazon and elsewhere in the tropics has been a major disaster, and we need to restore those if at all possible. That would take some carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But ultimately, if you're growing trees, even if they have a long lifetime, trees die. And the question is, what do you do then? There are plans to take trees and bury them in deep caves in where they've been mining coal or something or in the ocean and options like that. It's hard to see how the economics of that is going to work and who will really pay for it. So I think there are reservations as to how much you can produce negative emissions by just growing more and more trees. And I haven't seen other technologies really mentioned that seem to be, to me, very viable. Certainly offsets include all kinds of things about doing something that avoids producing, using fossil fuels. And to the extent that you can do a lot of those kind of things, you can argue, maybe that should have happened anyway. That's the question with a lot of these offsets. And I think a lot of offsets are somewhat artificial in that regard, but some of them certainly are genuine. Yes. And that's why preserving our oceans is is so important. As you reflect, as you think about the future and you reflect on education and the challenges we face, the important life lessons and teachers you had, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? More than anything, this is an intergenerational problem. The response to climate change relates very much to value systems. And one of the questions people ask or should ask is how much do you value the future generations? How much do you value the the world that you're leaving your children and your grandchildren and what kind of a climate you're leaving them with? And some people don't care and some people don't have children. 
And they state, hey, it's not an issue for me. It's not one of my values. And so this is part of the problem. But if you're thinking about peoples as a whole, all of the community that you're leaving behind, this is a collective problem. And that's the way I think of it is that this is very much an intergenerational problem. And therefore, it's in the interests of young people to get much more involved and much more politically active. I was uh, very much involved in this Juliana versus the United States case. I wrote a, a number of documents for them and I was deposed on television for two days in preparation for a major trial, which never actually happened. And it's been bumped around from one court system to another. And eventually the Ninth Circuit Court in the United States said, we don't really think this is something that we can deal with because it's a political issue. And that's where it stands at the moment. But there are more and more court cases around the world. I'm not sure how far they're going to go. Fundamentally, it is a, a political issue. It means that young people need to be politically active and they need to vote accordingly, perhaps more than anything else. You can certainly do a few things yourself by hanging your clothes on the clothesline, using solar power, putting solar panels on the roof and so on. But you really need to vote and, and get the right people in power so that they can make these structural changes that are not just in your state or country, but internationally. And that's the kind of progress which is needed. So by all means, any young people get involved. Thank you, Kevin Trenberth, for sharing your values and helping us understand where we are on climate, providing scientific knowledge so that we might meet our goals and avoid the worst of climate change impacts. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet Podcast. Well, thank you for having me and everyone. Vote. Pay attention. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michelski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Xander Broder with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Xander Broder and Lila Muskoski. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.